I also want to read for us this morning from James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Here again, God's Word. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, speak now words of truth and wisdom to us. Through your word, this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. We are back in the letter of James, or the letter of Jacob, if you want to uh, connect him to his Old Testament namesake. Uh, James tells his early Christian audience to ask for wisdom. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. Now, why did these early Christians need to be told to ask for wisdom? Well, they're told to ask for wisdom because of the trials they're facing, trials that are described back in verse 2, trials of various kinds. And if they are going to count their trials as joy, they need wisdom. Wisdom enables us to count our trials as joy. Trials show our need for wisdom, our lack of wisdom. Trials expose our foolishness and give us the opportunity to grow towards wisdom. You can really think of the theme of these verses this way. We need wisdom from above to endure trials here below. And through trials here below, God grants us wisdom from above. This is how trials mature us. And and really, this is a pattern we see through all of life. Hard subjects build knowledge. Hard exercise builds the body. Hard times build wisdom. It's clear all throughout Scripture, you, you cannot grow to maturity without hardship. And here James is showing us pain God brings into our lives drives us to seek wisdom. You know, when everything's going well, you may not really see your need for wisdom. When you're getting your way and everything seems to be working for you, you feel pretty self-sufficient. And so you don't seek a wisdom outside of yourself. You feel pretty confident about things. But when hard times hit, we begin to see just how weak and immature and foolish we really are. And so trials give us an opportunity to grow. If we don't waste our afflictions, if we will ask God for wisdom in the middle of our afflictions, we can profit from them. It's been said character is like an old photograph. It develops best in the dark. Kids, you can ask your parents about old photographs and what I'm talking about. Character is like an old photograph. It develops best in the dark. Why is that? Well, what do we do in the dark? How does darkness develop character? Well, in the dark, we cry out for the light, which means we cry out for wisdom. And God 
answers. God inflicts trials on us because there is no shortcut, there is no quick fix when it comes to Christian maturity. God uses trials to remove sin, to drive out the idols that grip us, and to restore us, to bring us to health and wholeness and to maturity. That's how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, suppose you are up against a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. So you've got a tumor in your body. The surgeon's going to cut it out. The surgeon's intentions are good, but what is he going to do? Lewis says the kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties, in other words, if you told him to stop the cutting, and he did, if he stopped the operation before it was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. Lewis goes on, he says, what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he's good? Have they never even been to a dentist? (laughs) Lewis says the dentist is good, but he might inflict a lot of pain on you. Pain is for your good. And so it is with God. In another place, Lewis uses this analogy. He says, many people think that becoming a Christian is rather like inviting God to come into their little one-bedroom apartment that needs some tidying up. They're under the impression that when God moves in with them, he'll help them wash the dishes or vacuum behind the couch. And that's why when he walks in and swings his sledgehammer into one of the walls, we recoil in horror. He isn't tidying up at all. He's breaking things. He's making a huge mess. Just as how is, just how is this an improvement? Things don't seem to be getting better. They seem to be getting worse. How can this be love, we ask? And when he carries on merrily through the house, chucking appliances out the windows and giving instructions for wrecking balls to take out the living room, we get the distinct feeling that he's decided to destroy us. But this is only half true. As a matter of fact, he has come to kill us, to destroy us, but he intends to break our tiny shack of a house down so he can build an unimaginably stunning and glorious mansion in its place. Trials are God's demolition project. He's tearing you down so he can build a better you in its place. And so Lewis goes on, he says, when things are difficult, when we're disappointed, when it feels like God is taking away things from us, things that we love, when it feels like he isn't loving us, it's really just the opposite. It is frequently in those moments that God is actually most loving towards us. He has something far better in store for us. He has a glory for us that will only fit us if we are dramatically changed. And it's a change that can only happen through suffering. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, when you get to heaven, you will see you had not one trial too many. God parceled out trials in perfect measure to you. God mixes trials into your life in perfect measure. I'm not a baker, but I know that if you bake a cake, if you look at all the ingredients that go into it, none of those ingredients really taste all that great on their own. But you mix them all together just right, you heat them up in the oven, and what comes out is something delicious, something truly wonderful. Particular trials on their own are certainly very difficult. They don't taste very good. 
But when we look at everything God brings into our lives, the whole mix that he brings together and heats up in the furnace of affliction, we find it's the perfect mix in the end. It's for our good in the end. James especially wants us to see the connection between trials and wisdom or between trials and maturity or between trials and wholeness. He puts it a lot of different ways. Trials drive us to seek wisdom. And as we do so, we see God has a good purpose in our suffering. One of the great themes of the Bible's wisdom literature, I know you've heard me talk about this before, one of the great themes of the Bible's wisdom literature is how to suffer faithfully and how to grow in wisdom as we suffer. James continues that theme. James is really part of the Bible's wisdom literature. We wrestle with God through trials like Jacob did in Genesis 32. And when that night of wrestling was over, Jacob asked God for a blessing. And so it is with us. James, the new Jacob, is telling us, when you wrestle with God in trials, don't let go, don't let God go without blessing you. Ask for a blessing. Ask for blessing in the form of wisdom. What you need most is not for God to give you an easy life, but for God to give you wisdom to navigate the hard aspects of your life. You don't need an easy life. You need wisdom to make it through the hard aspects of your life. Because as you go through trials, you will learn to trust God in all kinds of new ways. You'll learn to trust God through difficult or even seemingly impossible situations. And as you trust Him in these various trials, you will find Him giving you wisdom. Wisdom that enables you to hang on for dear life. Wisdom that enables you to persevere, to keep going, to not give up. To not give up on God, to not give up on what God is doing in your life. To be wise is to persevere in the faith. And as we persevere in the faith, we become wise. Right now, every single one of us is experiencing some kind of test of faith. Some kind of test. Maybe a huge test of your faith, and maybe a small test of your faith. But in the midst of that test, whatever it is, God wants you to cry out for wisdom. God wants you to ask for wisdom. And that wisdom will allow you to push through the trial to a greater level of maturity. Just like a coach who pushes an athlete to his limit so he can do things he didn't think he can do. God in our trials pushes us to higher levels of maturity. Wisdom enables us to glimpse God's design in our lives, God's good purpose in the midst of our suffering. Think of those early Christians like the one James is writing to or ones that came in subsequent centuries. Christians who suffered in all kinds of ways, losing their jobs and their properties and their loved ones, even losing their lives in some cases. They show us it can be done. If they did it by the grace of God, you can do it too if God calls you to it. And this is because true wisdom, this is really what the essence of true wisdom is. True wisdom is recognizing any kind of suffering with Christ is better than any kind of prosperity without Christ. Because Christ is wisdom 
in Himself. All the treasures and riches of God's wisdom are found in Him. To have Christ and nothing else is is better than having everything except Christ. Because if you have Christ and nothing else, you really have everything. And if you have everything except Christ, you really don't have anything. Wisdom seeks Christ. Wisdom craves becoming like Christ. That's what James is showing us, that through trials, even as Christ Jesus went through trials, so we grow in Christ's likeness through our trials. And when we have Christ's wisdom, we are mature, we are complete, we are whole, we are not lacking in anything. That's the ultimate goal James holds out for us, to be made like Jesus himself. The fool will look at his trials and conclude that God must not love him. The fool will look at his trials and think, therefore, God must not care for me. That's how he figures his trials. That's how he interprets them. He says God doesn't care, or perhaps even God doesn't exist. The fool says, I suffer, therefore, God is not. God is not good or God's not existent. The fool trusts his emotions instead of God's word. His feelings rather than Scripture define reality. But not so for the wise man. He doesn't look inside himself. He looks outside himself. He doesn't look down. He looks up to the source of true wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above. Wisdom is given through trials and for trials because that's the kind of thing wisdom is. Wisdom is learned through experience. The experience of obeying God in a wide variety of situations. You're not going to become wise just by reading a book. Reading books is great. I would encourage you to do it, to read good books. But reading good books is not going to make you wise in and of itself. No, you have to live a little. You've got to obey God in a variety of circumstances. Just one example of this. Who's got more wisdom about marriage? A man who has been married 50 years and maybe has never read a book on marriage, but he's made it work for five decades. He and his wife are very happy together. Or a guy who's never been married but has read a stack of books on marriage. The second guy might actually have more knowledge about marriage, but the first is the one who has wisdom. He's got more wisdom about marriage. There is simply no substitute for experience. If you will trust and fear God in the midst of difficulty, you will grow in wisdom. But don't think you can grow in wisdom without the struggle. The struggle plus obedience equals wisdom. Now let's look more closely at what James says about asking for wisdom, praying for wisdom. That's what James wants us to do. Pray for wisdom. Verse 5, he says to ask for wisdom, with the assurance that God is generous to answer our cry. He won't reproach us, James says. He won't rebuke us when we ask for wisdom in hard situations. You know, sometimes if you admit need, if you admit a lack, people will mock you, people will reproach you if you admit you have a weakness, but not so with God. He wants you to be vulnerable towards him in this way, to admit your weakness. He delights to help the helpless. 
His wisdom is there for the taking, but we have to humble ourselves and ask for it. If we're wise in our own eyes, we're not going to ask and we'll remain fools. But if we see how foolish we are, then we will ask for wisdom and we will be exalted and lifted up with this gift of heavenly wisdom. But then verse 6 gives conditions. Verse 6 adds a condition to this prayer. Let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That kind of man, the doubting storm-tossed man, James says, won't receive anything from the Lord because he is double-minded and unstable. So what does it mean to ask God for wisdom in faith? Let's talk about the faith part first and then the doubting part of it. What does it mean to ask God for wisdom in faith? You know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about faith and what it means to pray in faith today. There are certain preachers out there uh, known as prosperity gospel preachers who will say that if you ask for it in faith, if you believe it, it's yours. You can name it and claim it is how the slogan goes. And they will, of course, go on to say, this is the logical corollary of that, that if you don't get what you asked for, it's simply because you didn't believe hard enough. It's due to your lack of faith. Now, that is a lie. That is a false gospel. People do not suffer simply because they lack the faith to ask for healing and to blame people for their suffering in that kind of way is cruel and dishonest. It's unbiblical. Uh, it presents a, a twisted, disfigured picture of who God is. The prosperity gospel really under, misunderstands faith. The prosperity gospel turns faith into a form of self-hypnosis. Basically says, I just have to convince myself that God will give me whatever I want. I've got to talk myself into believing God will be my personal genie. And when I've done that, when I've hypnotized myself, convinced myself of this, then presto, God will grant me my wishes. That's how the prosperity gospel works. But that's not what faith is. Certainly that's not what faith is in the Scripture. That's not how it works. No, in Scripture, asking in faith means asking God based on God's Word, God's promises, God's character. Asking in faith means you root your prayers in what God says about Himself and what He says He will do. Asking in faith means you stake everything on this, on the Word of God, on the Bible. The prayer of faith is a Scripture-shaped, Scripture-based prayer. To pray in faith means to pray according to the Word. It means you base your prayers on what God has said in the Scriptures. That's what it means to ask in faith. But what about doubting? We ask in faith, James says, or to ask without doubting. But what does it mean to doubt? A lot of questions come up about Doubting. What does it mean to doubt? Can we trust and doubt at the same time? What would cause us to doubt? Why does doubting close us off to God's gift of wisdom? James is not saying here that you have to have perfect faith, perfectly mature faith in order to have your prayers answered. And he's not saying that you can't have doubt in any sense whatsoever. If you're doubting in the sense of struggling to understand something in God's Word, sometimes we use the, 
the, the, the word doubt that way uh, to describe some kind of struggle we have to understand what God says in his word. That James is not saying that kind of doubt disqualifies you. The kind of doubting in view here does not mean that you can't have questions for God. It doesn't mean you can't have complaints directed towards God. It doesn't mean that you can't recognize there are all kinds of things about God and his ways that are mysterious. All of that is fine. That's not the kind of doubting James is saying you can't have. Doubting here is very simply a form of distrust. It's hedging your bets. It's keeping one eye on God and one eye on something else. One foot in the, in the kingdom and one foot in the world. That's why the doubting man is described then as unstable in all his ways. The doubting man here is the one who refuses to go all in on God. He, he's holding something back. Now, there are a lot of different ways that uh, we could doubt in this kind of way, but I think there are two main things James has in mind when he speaks of doubt here. First, we can doubt because we doubt God himself. We simply don't believe what God says about himself. If you are praying for what God has promised, you should not doubt. You don't need to doubt. God has said it. That settles it. God says, ask for wisdom and I'll give it. And so simply believe that promise. Don't doubt it. But sometimes we do doubt God. We do doubt that God will really deal generously with us because that just seems too good to be true. And we start to think in terms of our deserts, what we deserve instead of God's grace. And indeed, that's why James so stresses the grace of God in this context. You know, it's, it's very interesting if you study the letter of James that James makes no explicit mention of the cross of Jesus. And that's one reason why this letter has sometimes been so controversial in church history. People wonder, well, where is the gospel of grace in James' letter? But if you read it carefully, you find this is a letter that is drenched in grace, that is dripping with grace, that is saturated in grace. And you see it here. James could not possibly emphasize God's grace more than he does. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask because God gives generously. He gives liberally. He gives freely. God is a generous gift giver. He is the gift giving God. God is not a miser or a tightwad. He delights to give good gifts to his children. He is an open-handed God, an open-hearted God. He's the gift giving God. That's how he names himself here. That's how he wants us to see him. And he doesn't just give. He doesn't give grudgingly. He gives liberally. He gives generously. God is a cheerful giver. God is a joyful giver. A little further down in James 1, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. God's life is a life of self-giving love. A life of gift-giving. He's the gift-giving God. He's the source of every good gift. Every good thing in the world is a benefit He has freely bestowed. Indeed, the existence of the world itself is a gift He's given. He's the gift-giving God. The giving God, the gift-giver. So you cannot think outside of God's gift-giving because everything is a gift. Creation is certainly a gift. God freely grants existence to everything that exists. 
He freely sustains our existence. Only God is self-existent. We're utterly dependent upon Him. It is His gift of life that brings us into existence, that sustains us. Salvation from sin is certainly a gift. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave. There's the gift. He gave the gift of His only begotten Son. Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. He gives and He gives and He gives. And He never gets exhausted. He never gets tired of giving. He never runs out of gifts. This is how Martin Luther describes it in his small catechism. He describes God the Father this way. God has made me in all creatures He has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all I have. He richly and daily gives me all that I need to support this body and life. All this He does only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. When Luther wants to unpack what it means for God to be our Father, he talks about God giving and giving and giving. God's whole life is a life of giving. And of course, this giving goes all the way back into the life of the Trinity. We can trace this all the way back up into the eternal triune life of God. Because in the eternal trinity, the Father gives to the Son. He gives the Son His glory. In John 17, Jesus refers to this glory that the Father gave Him from before the creation of the world and will now give to Him again. The Father gives to the Son. We see the Father giving the Son His Spirit. Uh, In John chapter 3, the Spirit without limit has been given by the Father to the Son. We see this played out at His baptism. After the crucifixion and in the resurrection, the Father gives His Son the name that is above every name. Philippians 2. So the Father gives to the Son. Of course, the Son also gives to the Father. The Father gives the Son life and glory. The Son gives life and glory back to the Father in return. And so giving in the Trinity moves in both directions. The triune life is a life of giving. Within the Trinity, God is giver, gift, and receiver. And in creation and in redemption, we see God's gift-giving turned inside out. It spills over to us. And so in redemption, we are given by the Father to the Son and by the Son to the Father. Think about that. We are at the center of a Father-Son gift exchange. In salvation, we receive the Son from the Father and the Spirit from the Father through the Son. And of course, we make a return gift as well to the Father in the form of worship offered through the Son and by the Spirit. The whole of Scripture, the whole Bible is about this economy of gifts being exchanged, this gift-giving economy. It all starts with God flowing from Him and returning to Him. God is an inexhaustible fountain a never-ending source of gifts and glory and love. He gives and gives and gives, and He never runs out of more to give. He always has more to give. 
And he wants to give. It is his joy to give. It's his very nature and essence as God to give. He gives everything and then he gives still more. He is infinitely giving. That's what James wants you to see. And so James says, don't doubt. Ask. Ask in faith. Ask without doubting. You're asking the ultimate giver for a gift He wants to give you. Why doubt the generosity of a God whose whole life from all eternity and in all of history is one of giving? Why doubt when God says, ask and I will give to you generously? Why doubt God will answer your prayer for wisdom when He has said again and again, I want to give you this gift of wisdom. Doubts based on who God is should be annihilated by these truths. These are doubt-destroying truths. Doubting God Himself will keep you from receiving what God wants to give you. But there is another reason we can doubt. We doubt because we don't really want to hear what God has to say. We can doubt because we don't really want the wisdom God has to offer us. We are afraid His word of wisdom will require us to do something we don't want to do. And so, well, we might pay lip service to God asking for wisdom. We don't really want His wisdom. We're double-minded. We're unstable. Sometimes we doubt because we don't really want to hear what God has to say. Sometimes wisdom is a hard pill to swallow. Wisdom can have sharp edges. Wisdom can be rough. Wisdom can be hard to hear. Wisdom can be challenging. And we all know this because we've all done this. There has probably been a time in your life when you had a problem or a question about what you should do and you knew you should ask for advice or counsel from someone wiser than you, but you did not ask because deep down you didn't want to hear what they had to tell you. And at some level, you knew that. And so you just, you know, you didn't want to hear what they had to say. You didn't want to be told no. You didn't want to be told to do something different than the course you'd already set for yourself. A lot of us, I'm afraid, would rather live in a fantasy world of sorts where we can insulate ourselves from the unpleasant aspects of reality. And so we don't seriously pursue or ask for wisdom. We ask in a half-hearted way. We ask with doubts. We ask for wisdom, but without intending to put into practice the wisdom that is offered to us. We prefer foolish fantasy to wise reality. And actually, I think this is a very good description of our culture. The truth is, our whole culture really has become something of a fantasy land, a sort of virtual reality We are out of touch with the basic design of the world. Our culture is out of touch with the way the world actually works, with the built-in creational realities God has put there. And so what do you see in our culture? If some aspect of reality does not mesh with someone's preferences or preconceptions, what do they do? They just ignore it. They screen it out. In our culture, feelings and imaginations and ideologies have overridden reality. And so we have transgenderism, which allows feelings to override the facts of biology. 
We have socialism, which ignores the laws of economics so politicians can bribe voters with promises of free stuff. Okay, note the scare quotes, free stuff. If you think it's really free, you're living in a fantasy world. We have the opioid crisis, which allows people to pretend they can escape the burdens and responsibilities of real life through mind-numbing drugs. Why do people turn to drugs so often? It's because they don't want to face reality. Because our culture has lost the fear of God, we have lost touch with reality. We are in the grip of collective insanity. And I like to say, you know, there's this thing called reality, and you ought to check in with it every once in a while. Just to make sure. In our culture, people continually confuse the way they'd like the way of the world to be with the way the world actually is. And they allow their wants to override the realities. It's foolish because it ignores the way God has designed the world. It rejects the laws God has built into human nature, the patterns God has woven into the fabric of reality. It's insane because it denies reality. G.K. Chesterton said, fallacies do not cease to be fallacies just because they become fashionable. Fashionable fallacies are still fallacies. T.S. Eliot said it well. He said, humanity, humanity can bear very little reality. And so we doubt God's wisdom. But you know, in the church, it shouldn't be that way. I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes the church is influenced by the world. But it shouldn't be this way in the church. The church should be different. In the church, we should be utter realists. That's really what wisdom is. A commitment to realism. To have wisdom is to be attuned to reality. To have wisdom is to square up to the way God made the world. It's to deal with the world as it actually is, not as we would like it to be. And that's why you will hear truth spoken in church. You won't hear anywhere else today. Only the church is going to tell you the truth about sin and death and an everlasting hell. Only in the church, really, are you going to find the truth about manhood and womanhood and family life. The truth about sex and sexuality. The truth about greed and covetousness and the great dangers of wealth. The truth about life in the womb and stewardship of the creation. Our culture is full of lies. The church should be a place where truth is spoken and heard. But see, that's just the problem. The church's message is not always easy to hear. Sometimes we don't want to hear. We want to close our ears to it. There are parts of Scripture we'd like to ignore and and just pretend aren't there. There are parts of Scripture we'd like to screen out. But that's not wise. Wisdom faces the truth squarely and embraces it. The culture says, my feelings define reality, and anyone who contradicts that is a hater or a bigot. And the result is we have a culture full of people who think of themselves as victims. But really, the the, the biggest victim of all in our culture is Lady Wisdom herself. Truth is the victim. Reality is the victim. And so ask God for wisdom, but ask with a readiness, a willingness to put it into practice. It takes guts to ask God for wisdom, to really ask. Truth is not for the faint-hearted. Wisdom is not for cowards. Wisdom is for the bold, 
Wisdom is for the daring. Wisdom is for the courageous. When you ask God for wisdom, you're asking Him to put you in direct contact with reality. To put you in touch with the way things are. And yes, sometimes that is hard. Sometimes the truth hurts. We all have itching ears. We want to have them tickled. Truth is often harsh. It's hard to hear. It's got sharp edges. It cuts. It's like that surgeon cutting into you. But truth is always good for us in the long run. There is no maturity without it. Just just one example of this. Death. Think about death. Wisdom about death is not easy to take. It's a hard pill to swallow. Our culture is obsessed with youth, with staying young. We want to hide death out of sight. But Psalm 90, Moses tells us, numbering our days aright is the key to wisdom. Ecclesiastes tells us it's better to enter the funeral home, that is, the house of mourning, than to go to the place of feasting. Sometimes it's better to see death, to look death in the eye. Our culture doesn't want to do that, but that's part of becoming wise. Wisdom faces death squarely and prepares for it, but many of us would rather ignore death and live like fools. That's what we see all around us. If you ask God for wisdom, there's a lot about your life that's going to have to change. It's a dangerous prayer. If you ask God for wisdom, get ready for the wrecking ball. Get ready for that sledgehammer C.S. Lewis talked about. Because it's coming. Wisdom about money, about sex, about power, about marriage, about life. It's just hard to take in. But ask for wisdom we must. We want to live lives of joy and flourishing. We want to live holistic lives. If we want to grow to maturity, to Christ-likeness. The only way to live life to the fullest is to embrace God's wisdom. Let's pray. Father, would you ask that you would give us wisdom, even if it means we have to change all kinds of things about our lives. God, give us wisdom, wisdom that comes from above. May we grow in wisdom through life's trials. May we be given wisdom to navigate life's trials faithfully. This is our prayer in the name of the one who embodies your wisdom, Jesus Christ. Amen.